This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hey, everybody. Today, it is January 19th. Markets are in flux, but they've been down the last couple days. Big day two days ago, JP, uh, sorry, Goldman Sachs earnings really kind of sunk it a little bit. Um, share of Goldman Sachs is down 6% two days ago. And it's just kind of kept on along the same trajectory, just been slightly down the last few days. Uh, Tim, you know, let's let's kind of talk about what's happened. The market so far year to date is up a few points, right? But um, this week's been kind of slow. Yeah. I mean, basically, we had two good pieces of economic data, which was the the non-farm payrolls came in a little bit better. The household survey, which had been looking like it was going to roll over hard, kind of caught up to the good side, to the non-farm payrolls. So you've got this backdrop of still pretty strong employment, not pretty strong, but still really tight labor markets, um, no matter what you look at, whether it's some of the beige book commentary, hell, every district still has really tight labor markets, but at the same time, inflation is coming down. So, so people are starting to wonder, is there really a soft landing possible? And I think that's why we did have that super low quality, squeezy five or six day stretch in there. Uh, you know, Larry Summers, who's been one of the raging bears out there and a, and a credible voice, obviously, he was asked a question in Davos and he said, it's a great quote, he said, uh, a soft landing is the triumph of hope over experience, but sometimes hope does over <laughs> does defeat experience. So, you know, that was quite an equivocation for him. I wrote that about, I wrote about that quote in the essay, and, and I think that the fact that you see these guys who are super bearish and the fact that you see this short squeeze rally tells you that the most recent data is starting to scare some people. Now, I'm of the view that the preponderance of data still suggests that we're slowing down hard. But what I wrote about in the essay is kind of entertaining what would a soft landing look like. One of the arguments I make is if you're going to have a soft landing and not a recession, you're going to have to have positive wage growth, but at the same time, not that much inflation. You got to have inflation coming down while wages stay high. And, you know, I, I kind of have this discussion about wage push inflation and about a wage price spiral. And I kind of wonder aloud if, is it possible that we could have some wage growth without a wage price spiral? Because in this scenario that we're talking about right now, you have disinflation. If you're an employer, you've got disinflation away from wages. So you only have to pass through some of that wages offset by that other disinflation. Whereas usually, historically, when you've had a wage price spiral, the fear of it, it's driven by the prices of everything going up. And, and workers are asking for more money, not simply because they have leverage, but because they need it, because they have to have it, because costs are going up. Well, the costs are going up for that employer too. And in that scenario, that employer's got to pass through all the costs, including the wages, and therefore maybe generates more inflation. Look, it's hopeful thinking. I think any economist would tell you that, you know, three and a half percent unemployment and this level of wage pressure is totally inconsistent with a two percent CPI. So I, I do think while I kind of articulate that possible uh, good outcome, 
I think it's much more likely that we're really decelerating rapidly right now. You see it in the leading economic indicators, especially in housing, especially in ISMs and new orders. You're really in contraction mode, and those are really strong, predictive leading economic indicators. Obviously, the curve inversion is telling you that we're going to have a recession. Wherever you want to look at the curve inversion, it would be unprecedented for us not to have one. If you look at liquidity, you could look at M2. You could look at the assets on the Fed's balance sheet. You could look at bank reserves. All the charts look the same, and they're all correlated with the S&P. When the Fed's printing money, when bank reserves are going up, when M2 is going up, the market goes up globally. The opposite is true. The correlations are really very tight, regardless of what measure of liquidity you look at. And we know liquidity is going to continue to go lower. So it, so from all of those uh, standpoints, and, and then it's just the final piece that markets don't bottom at 19, 20 times earnings. They, they just don't, especially when you're at peak all-time operating margins. Operating margins are correlated with ISMs and new orders as well. So I just I, I have a hard time not thinking that this is going to be a, an earnings season, we're sure, once again, 60 or 70% of companies will be, but really matters is when they start to give the 2023 outlooks. And I think you'll see earnings estimates for 2023 continue to migrate towards 200. And, and probably it won't happen in this quarter. But as we go through the year, as the economy does slow, as it does appear that we're going to have certainly negative real growth and much less nominal growth, numbers are still going to have to come down. And I wouldn't be surprised if the S&P numbers need to end up below 200 for 2023. There seems to be some kind of um, juxtaposition between different economists and federal uh, people representing the Fed. So, I mean, Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics, said if you're yeah. doing a forecast, we should be ending the rate increases soon. Dean Baker, senior economist at the Center of Economic Policy Research, said the same. At the same time, Raphael Bostick, is adamant that he sees interest rates rising up past five um we're looking at the fed's bench yeah. fund, um, rates so i mean it's just like who ultimately prevails in terms of policies you know, what, what's to be decided yeah. you know it, it, it'll depend on how weak the data is over the next couple months they're definitely going at least 25 bips and then they're going to be data dependent i always say the same thing the fed always should come out of every meeting and say the same thing We'll see we're data dependent. I don't know where the data is going to be any better than you or I do. Well, they, they've got bigger economic econometric models, but they don't always prove to be terribly accurate, obviously. Uh, look, Zandi's been bullish for a while. Zandi has been, and I think he's excellent. I, he's been in kind of the soft landing camp for a while, uh, but we'll see. I, I think that you are finally starting to see a more meaningful acceleration to the downside in the coincident and leading economic indicators. And I think they suggest we're gonna have probably negative growth uh, as you get to Q2. And at that point, the Fed will stop. Now, the Fed is gonna have to deal with this wage issue though. If we're still at three and a half percent, and look, you can look at all the different wage measures, whether it's ADP or, you know, average hour earnings really isn't a great wage measure because it really, just represent as it's come down, it really has just showed that there's just more, a lot more part-time labor, there's more job growth and lower um, <clears throat> lower income quartiles. Uh, but if it's the Atlanta Fed wage growth tracker, it just hasn't come down that much. So even as it looks like we're slowing a lot, if unemployment's still at three and a half percent and job leavers are still, uh, you know, still getting 10, 12, 13, 14% year over year wage growth, uh, I think the Fed has to keep going. 
they they I, I just we'll see. But I, I don't I don't think a soft landing is the more and more I walk through it and try to figure out how that would look. It just seems like a very low percentage bet that you could really engineer a soft landing because if wages do get negative, if 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 the Fed finally sees negative wage growth, well, where's the consumption going to come from that prevents the recession? So it's as I say, I think if you're going to have to have, if you have, if you believe in a soft landing, you have to believe that you could have some wage growth with all the relief and in inflation everywhere else in the economy, including services, which are of course, the inflation there is driven by wages. So how does that work? Uh, mm -hmm. And then I think you also have to believe that you're not going to have a credit event. And I just have a hard time believing that when you've moved rates this much globally after years and years of free money and printing money and competitive devaluation, that you're not going to have uh, a, a, some credit events out there amid a slower economy. It's been interesting to see where wages have gone to. Um, I mean, if you're looking at CPI, real hourly earnings from the 70s, it's certainly been pretty flat. PCE is actually, by that metric, it's been slightly better. Um, but really, for the first time since the 70s, kind of the bottom quarter has done um, better. Um, really, it's been the middle class has been squeezed. I mean, the Economist article I'm referencing talks about all sorts of stuff, whether that's, uh, you know, expansion of Medicaid and then also increased unionization efforts and then um, mm -hmm. tax policies been somewhat advantageous. So it's really been the middle class who's been squeezed the most, it seems like, in this, um, you know, in this wage spiral yeah. uh, as opposed yeah. to you know, the, some of the, the lower income workers. Yeah. And, and I saw that work, you know, and it's, a lot of it seems to be around how much inflation that you've had in autos and in, in not only gasoline uh, and diesel, if you have a diesel car, but also just in, in auto costs, uh, auto, the, the price of cars have just skyrocketed used cars as well. Now, that's finally starting to roll over here. But I'm amazed at the amount of people that have thousand dollar car payments. Like I just, you know, a lot of people got way too overextended on autos. And now you look at it and all of a sudden your cost of capital is two or three X what it would have mm -hmm. been buying a car last year. And it really becomes prohibitive. And I think that's why we're looking at an outlook for a SAR that, I mean, SAR run rate used to be 16, 17 million cars a year. And I think we'll be looking at something much more like 13 million. But anyway, to your question, you know, I think the thing that's interesting is, uh, look, we, we always talk about how earnings uh, accruing to labor are starting to go higher. Labor is starting to get a bigger piece of the pie. And one of the things that happens with globalization is you end up with greater disparity. You know, labor loses out because they can outsource your job and profits get better for investors and, and, and management. Well, as you go to deglobalization, the opposite happens. Uh, you start to get more parity. You start to get leverage and negotiations for wages from workers. Uh, as you have a really tight labor market, management can't outsource that anymore. Now, the other side of it too is that with globalization, uh, the disparity between countries goes down, right? We always talk about how in 1990, the American worker made 35 times what the Chinese worker made. Well, that number is more like four times now. And by the mm -hmm. way, the Chinese worker now makes more than the Mexican worker uh, on average. So, you, you, you know, you, while you've created you created disparity internally, you created more parity between countries. And now I think that reverses 
where you'll have more parity intra-country and labor will continue to get a bigger piece of the pie. I hope. Yeah, and, and then the point you made before about the lettuce, uh, it was Cardi B who said $7 a head of lettuce, that shit's crazy. Um, <laughs> but obviously, <laughs> you know, pretty good the economy. larger point is people can forego $7 lettuce, but, you know, if you're living suburban existence, you, you need the car and you need you need to be driving. And just don't forget, I mean, the number one selling car in the in the country ever, not selling a car, but the number one selling vehicle is an F-150. Number two is a Silverado. Number three is the Dodge Ram. All gas vehicles or diesel vehicles, you know, you're driving mm -hmm. that if you're commuting to work and you live 30 miles, you know, it's, it's really, really meaningful. That's why gas prices matter so much. It's one of the reasons why inflation expectations always move around and economists spend a lot of time looking at it. I really don't, because as far as I can tell, it so simply reflects gasoline prices. I mean, there's a reason why the president and previous presidents have wanted to release the SPR to drive down gasoline prices. Gasoline prices really, really matter. And I think gas prices are going to start to go up again in the near term. I was actually talking to a downstream uh, investor and a guy who has been a consultant to the refiners for a long time and an investor in the refiners. And he was talking about just how much they have been putting off turnarounds, how much they have been putting off shutting down the refinery to, you know, to do basic maintenance. Um, and the more you put it off, the more they're running full out and crack spreads have gone down. That's one of the reasons why gasoline has come down so much. Uh, well, the, 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 the result of that is ultimately you are going to have more downtime and you're going to have less capacity. And I think that as oil prices recover here a little bit with the China reopen, you'll see probably crack spreads grow up as, as you see more downtime for your refineries, less refining capacity. And that has a double impact where the commodity and the crack spread goes up, which makes gasoline go up that much more. Yeah, the China reopening has really changed forecasts quite substantially, right? Like Barclays on Friday raised global from um, growth forecast from 2.2 .2 in 2023, uh, and that was up 0.5 percentage points. Uh, TS Lombard on Friday raised yeah. its euro uh, eurozone growth um, with with Germany, uh, one of the big ones. Um, U.S. to be expectations is a slight double dip recession, but positive by the year end 2023. Yeah. So, and that's largely all due to China's reopening um, yeah. and better numbers than expected. Yeah. I mean, those are all intuitive things to do, right? All of a sudden, yeah. zero COVID policies over. You've had people locked up for a couple of years. Don't forget mm -hmm. when you've been locked up for a couple of years, you haven't been spending discretionary money. So pent up savings in China is a lot higher. But I think analysts have to be honest about what they know about China. I mean, it's hard enough to make forecasts in the U.S. and Europe, where at least you know the economic data is is close to at least they're trying to get it right, as opposed yeah. to China. I just still am consumed with Chinese savings is in real estate, and real estate I think is still on the backside of a painfully imploding bubble. And when confidence is lost in real estate, when the greater fool theory has been taking your apartment up, your apartment price isn't going up because you're getting a tremendous rent. Your apartment's empty, but it still goes up and it still goes up. And it's all just speculation on, you know, on the capital appreciation as opposed to what the income could be of that apartment. So, you know, the huge vacancy rates, especially in the tier two and tier three city, especially in the Western cities, I just think there's a disaster there and there's going to be a wealth effect from that. How it all plays out in terms of pent up savings and pent up demand, 
and then offset by the wealth effect of housing and what happens with housing, I have no idea. So I think China is just a very, very tough call. And I think we all just kind of watch and see what imports and exports look like. And still imports to China are still way down and their export numbers most recently are fairly weak as well. On the European thing, I mean, you know, hey, thank God for climate change. It's 65 degrees in Warsaw. I mean, they, they've broken records. They've broken, they've broken highest ever temperature readings in Germany and Poland and Spain by like five degrees, like mm -hmm. not even close. And so Europe dodged a bullet, but almost predictably in that you had an incredibly warm uh, winter and you and you know we're now in late January or getting to late January and storage net gas storage facilities I think in Germany are at eighty percent still so they really dodged a bullet uh, and sentiment has really started to improve as a result in Europe. Yeah, um, you know that really we're able to forego a Russian winter as a result. Um, a lot of the talks about you know was, I think at one point it looked like. A third of Brits could have been forced into poverty uh, due to increased gas prices, and you know that obviously with warmer temperatures that didn't play out as much. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, what do you think we've overlooked this week? I think obviously the big thing is Yellen's talking about how the Treasury's taking extraordinary measures to avoid yeah. default, and the U.S. debt hit. Um, that is the you know 12 million ton gorilla in the room, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> how does it play out? Man, I have no idea. Um, I mean, I hope there, there's something called the discharge petition where you could basically do an end around around the speaker and basically all of the Democrats could get together with a handful of Republicans and with a majority vote, uh, be able to raise the, the debt ceiling. Uh, now, whether or not you could find those five or six Republicans, I don't know. Um, and, you know, how that all works uh, in terms of the mechanics of the House is still a little bit murky, but I think that's the best case scenario. Um, but, you know, you had Manchin on TV today from Davos talking about he wants to negotiate. Uh, so I think there's going to be pressure eventually on the White House where they probably will have to give in on long-term cost of living adjustments and the way we inflate Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid out into the future. It'll be interesting to see if the Republicans really do want to cut defense spending. Uh, that really surprised me. I don't know where that came from. All of a sudden, Republicans are worried about woke military policies and they want to punish the military for that. It all just strikes me as bizarre. Uh, I, you know, so I, I, I think one way or another, the debt ceiling thing does get worked out. Uh, it's hard to make a bet um, on the lunatic fringe of the right. But I think one way or another, we are not going to default on, on the debt. I think the other really interesting news this week is China admitting that the population is declining and the fertility rate keeps going lower. People have to remember that they ended the one child policy and what happened? Fertility rates continued to go lower. So China really is on the precipice of shrinking rapidly and having the same kind of inflationary, way too many retirees for the amount of workers that you have that the rest of the world is facing. And it really brought, you know, real focus on the demographic issues are very, very real. No, definitely are. I, I mean, I think it's going to be a matter of a couple of months before they ring the bell and declare that India is the most populated country in the world. Um, yeah. You know, they're thinking that's going to happen this year. And 
based on the China data and based on India's, you know, it's it's only a matter of a couple months before that becomes a formal um, statement. And that obviously changes the broader conversation about what the BRIC countries are and, and, and you know, what's going on in Asia and who the, you know, future players will be. Um, purely demographics, yeah. you know, India's got a median income of 20, mid 20 somethings, right? So it's just, it's a fundamentally different society than China and much more vibrant in terms of demographics, but. Yes, yeah, definitely. I mean, the only areas of the world that really have young demographics and high fertility rates are basically Southeast Asia, India, and, and mm -hmm. Sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, are those areas of the world going to, to be where we export labor to or, or where we kind of import deflation from? I don't know. It's not going to be like China, though, where China just came on, went from zero to 100 miles an hour and exported deflation for the whole 35, 40 years of the great moderation. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, you'll start to see more Apple production out of India. Uh, mm -hmm. I think, you know, India is in a good position, but the transition is not going to look like the great deflation that the world got from China. No, I mean, the centralization of the Chinese government, um, right. I mean, obviously right. dramatic downsides, but then in terms right. of operating a command economy in the 70s and 80s, it was able to move faster than India is. Yeah, it's like, you know, yeah. there's the great story of a, a, a guy who wants to build a manufacturing facility and the Chinese governor and magistrates take him to a town and they say, we're going to build the factory right here. And he's like, well, there's a town here. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to move the town. It's yeah, right. Going to go. The factory's going. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. that's not easy to do anywhere else. No, absolutely <laughs> not. All right, sounds good. I, I think that's all we have for this week. Um, thanks for all the listeners and subscribers as we relaunch season eight in the new year. Um, and you know, uh, give us a like and share. And we're out. Thanks. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host, and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WellFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.